How long, O Lord, must we call for help and you do not listen? Or cry out to you about violence and you do not save? Why do you force us to look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Oppression and violence are right in front of us. Strife is ongoing and conflict escalates. This is why the law is ineffective and justice never emerges. For the wicked restrict the righteous, therefore justice comes out perverted. Answer us, Lord our God. Restore brightness to our eyes. We have trusted in your faithful love, and our hearts will rejoice in your deliverance. Amen. Come on in, everybody. Welcome. Um, like Roger said, we're going to be watching two videos back to back. Um, they're very good companion videos that just really uh, both uh, are talking about the same topic. The first one is called Lessons from Ferguson. It's um, the Missouri Patrol Captain Ronald Johnson, and he's discussing the challenge of getting past the past, of creating order amidst the chaos. And so he's got some really good words that speak to that about, from his experiences that he had through that. Um, the second one is called Impl Implicit Racial Bias, and it's David Bailey as the speaker. He's the founder and executive director of Airbon, which I didn't know what Airbon was, so I went online and looked it up, and on their webpage it says, Airbon means a foretaste of what is to come. We believe Christian communities should be a foretaste of heaven in the world. In heaven there is no division of race, class, or tribe. Airbon is a ministry that equips churches and organizations with the cultural intelligence and reconciliation practices to be a foretaste of heaven. So his words really speak well to um, having diversity with the kingdom, within the kingdom, and it's a reason for cultural celebration, not segregation. So let's listen to what these men have to say. Over the last year, uh, you couldn't be alive and not have engaged this conversation and understood the news cycle and what was taking place, especially as we got to November when Officer Darren Wilson shot um, an 18-year-old, Michael Brown, um, in his police active line of duty. Uh, and then the indictment did not happen uh, to Darren Wilson. And there was tons of media debate about that and, and all of the legalities around it. Our point here today is not to get into the specifics of, of the case, but to talk about what does it mean in the midst of a crisis moment to lead and what are the lessons we can learn about our communities because clearly if you're like me you might have been a little surprised by how quickly this reaction took place and what it should do for us is, is alert us that man something else is going on underneath the surface that I wasn't aware of there's some conversation that has not been had and this gave us an opportunity and I think a once in a generation moment to think about race to think about how are we as younger people engaging this conversation that maybe we thought our parents had already engaged and had passed us um, and it called us back into a very important conversation. There couldn't be a better couple of people to have this conversation for us. And so would you join me in welcoming them to the Q stage? All right, Captain Johnson, uh, Gabe has already said that uh, we don't we're not really going to use this time to go over uh, those moments leading up to that tragic situation and that's been debated and scrutinized. But you and I were in several meetings uh, really since that moment and, and leading up to the grand jury announcement. So I've seen, you, I've seen you up close. I want to ask you some specific questions just so these folks can get to know you a little bit better. Would you start off by just telling us your, your initial invitation into this situation and your involvement? Well, on August 14th, the governor of Missouri decided that uh, we need to make some changes in the way police are responding to the incidents in Ferguson. Uh, I wake up a normal day. Uh, about 12 o'clock, I get a call that says the governor is going to meet and he may make some changes. Uh, nobody knows what that is going to be. Uh, three hours later, I find out that I am the new uh, person in charge of security with the Ferguson detail. Um, I go back and I meet with the governor and he uh, outlines some uh, verbiage that I am going to read at the press conference. I read that, but then there's a Q&A after that and I had no notes to uh, read after that. Yeah, uh, you told me your initial 
really intent was to bring calm to a situation that had quickly turned chaotic. Could you give us some specifics on how, how you did that? How, what were some of the initial points that you were trying to, to address? Well, I tell you, the days leading up before the 14th, I began to reflect back on what our country had gone through in the 60s with the civil rights and those issues. I knew that we, we, it wasn't fair to go through that again, and we need not go through that again. And so initially, I, uh, we had things like dogs that had been used early on, uh, got rid of those. Uh, we had officers with gas masks, I asked that they put them behind them and some of those things. Uh, uh, we had rifles with, uh, pointed at crowds with scopes on the top, and we put those away. Uh, because you get back to who you are, and I think when I took over, I stepped away from that police uniform and, and looked at myself as a man, a father, a friend, a son, and, and I approached it from that standpoint, and, and really, the police aspect of it was way down on the ladder. You also told me, though, that you began to, to use your insight into how, let's go back to the dogs, for, for instance, how that was perceived, particularly in the black community. So I want to ask you a question, because we've talked back and forth about this. People say, you know, we're, some people say we should be colorblind in these situations. And, and I asked you about that. You had a real specific answer. I mean, can we be colorblind in these situations? You know, I think those that occupy the walls of our nation that uh, say they're colorblind, we're not colorblind and we should not be colorblind. I think if we're colorblind, then we're saying we're blind to the differences in our nation and our country that make us great. And I think that we must embrace those differences and that will create unity in our communities and our nation. And so part of that was you taking that awareness and understanding there were just some things that needed to change in how you were managing this situation based on the, the way the community was perceiving it. Let me ask you another specific. Uh, we were in some meetings with Dr. David Anderson, who's a noted author and expert on race relations, and he kept saying to us this one phrase that we just couldn't let go of, and it was distance demonizes. And he talked about how uh, from a distance, it's easy to, to demonize someone on the other side of the debate. Would you specifically talk to how you closed that distance and how you encouraged others to close that distance? Well, I'd say before our meeting, I thought I came up with this great idea about closing distance. But I realized along uh, West Florissant, there was a distance. Police were on one end, uh, the protesters were on another end of the street. Uh, on the uh, 15th, I decided that we were going to put the officers along the entire street of West Florissant, where they could engage with the citizens. But on the 14th, when I left that press conference, and everybody said, what is your plan? And I can tell you, I had no plan. I only had found out an hour ago that I would be in charge. <laughs> but as I left that press conference, I got in the car, there were two troopers in there with me, and I began to pray and ask God to give me a plan. And there was a march that was taking place that day uh, by one of our ministers in our community. And I knew her very well. Her kids actually had spent the night over my house and are good friends with mine. And so I go to the march and I see her and I ask her, can I march? And she says, no, I'd rather you not. And I chuckled in disbelief. And I said, really? And she said, really, I'd rather you not. But I think at that moment, God was humbling me and said, this is not going to be an easy task. Pull your chest in, everything's not gonna be this open door. And I told her, I said, I want to march in the back. I said, no one has to see me, and I'll venture off before we get to the end. And when I spoke those words to her, she said, you can march with us. We began to march down the street uh, just to show people that we have to partner in this challenge that's going to make it better. But people started to come out and hug me and pray for me. And I tell you, in the midst of a lot of the name callings that went on, whenever people would pray for me, it would stop. For that moment, it was stopping. So that, to me, was that changing point. And uh, faith just really uh, played a big role uh, the way things ended. You, you did specifically say, as a bridge builder, a, a peacemaker, that, that there were folks really on both sides of this that were not understanding. You even said some people were considering me a traitor in some ways. Uh, can you speak to that a little bit? You know, I did a presentation uh, in Virginia last week, and when I put up my PowerPoint, I show my picture, and then I have the word traitor, courageous, or coward. And people, law enforcement saw me as a traitor. Uh, some people in, in the African-American community saw me as a traitor or coward. 
And some people said I was courageous. And I think people viewed my actions in different ways. But I think when you walk the middle of the road, it's probably the toughest road to walk. Uh, but I think that you have to be fair. And I think uh, you have to have compassion and those things. But I think in the end, people understood. Because while people were angry that I walked down the street and I hugged people, we saw it days later, policemen were hugging. Yeah. The community was hugging. And so sometimes we have to lead by example. And you know, even at our press conferences and our briefings, I started them off with prayer. And at first it was awkward for those that participated. But then they began, I looked around and you start seeing lips move and they start praying themselves. Yeah, let's go on ahead and speak just briefly to the night of the grand jury announcement. Uh, before that, I know you were in several meetings. We were in meetings together with the, both, both Captain Johnson and Chief John Belmar of the St. Louis County Police. Really, this didn't make a lot of the media coverage, but they were in a lot of offline, under the radar meetings with community protesters, pastors in the area. And so thinking now back to all of those meetings and all of that time invested before the announcement, was it worth it? Yes, it was. And, and we had a great opportunity to talk to a lot of groups. We had a great opportunity to talk to a lot of young people. And those young people actually encouraged me and inspired me. And when we look at the movement that occurred there at Ferguson, it was the energy of our young people that said there's been something that's been brewing in our community for a long time. You know, young people from across the world came to Ferguson and said, this is just not an issue in Ferguson. The things that are brewing in our country with law enforcement, education, and jobs, it's a world issue. And so um, I, it, it had a positive impact. And it still does to this day. So you mentioned that there were people who came from outside, and folks may not hear know that, but uh, a number of the protesters that were arrested, in fact, at times, a majority of the protesters that were arrested came from outside the St. Louis area. And you talked to me about noticing sort of two different camps to the folks that were coming from outside to, to, to Ferguson. Could you speak to that? And we had protesters and we had rioters, and we need to understand they're separated. Those protesters were exercising their, their rights. Their rights are simple, their rights of speech. The rioters were there to cause destruction and chaos. But I can also tell you that, to be fair to those that came from around the country, some of those that came around the country, those protesters, actually taught the local young people and old people how to protest, the way to protest, and became more organized. You know, we had clergy that came in from other states that had gone through similar things that helped our clergy on how to interact with, with, with the crowds that were there. And so um, I think that there was a balance, but I think that uh, the outside protesters that came actually benefited the uh, movement there in Ferguson. There were some who were participating in the looting who didn't even really know what they were doing or why they were supposed to be doing that. You, you mentioned to me a couple of specifics in that. Now you talked about myself and Chief Belmer talking, and we talked to a lot of young kids in high school. But when we watched videos, there were some young people who were just there because they thought that's what they were supposed to do. And we watched them, and they would be in the store, and they would just be walking around thinking, what should I do? I'm in here. And they would just grab a bag of chips or, or a candy bar. Um, and, and then you'd see them walk out and never open the bag. And so I think that, you know, our media played a role in that, and, and our young people thought that's what they were supposed to do. Uh, but now, and I've seen young people, like go to the high school, and, and someone will have their head down, we talk about the looting, so you know they were there, uh, because they thought they were supposed to be. And, and we just have to teach our young people that uh, sometimes it's, it's okay to stand up and have that courage and, and pull your classmate aside and say, hey, we need to do something different. Okay, so let's let's shift it now towards moving forward in the wake of Ferguson. And I know that these these situations are different. I know that the, the details may not all be similar, but in the national conversation, when you see uh, Ferguson, when you see things that have happened in New York City, in Oklahoma, in South Carolina, now in Baltimore recently, how does law enforcement rebuild a kind of trust, really in many communities, but specifically in the African-American community? I think we have to reveal ourselves on who we are. That uniform that we wear has to be far down on the totem pole. And we have to treat our community just like we treat our family and have that same compassion and that understanding. And uh, we have to connect. We have to be partners uh, in our community. And so I think it's going to take that. But we're going to have to be transparent. 
the things that we do, we're going to have to be transparent. If we make a mistake, we have to own up to those mistakes. What do you think about body cameras? I think body cameras are, are a good idea. I think body cameras are actually a tool that will assist law enforcement in regaining that trust because it'll give us an, give us an opportunity to show who we are and how we do those things. And I tell people all the time, I am proud to be a law enforcement officer with a thousand law enforcement officers across this country that serves our nation great. But that which is unfair and unjust and unbroken does not deserve the worthless badge. Okay, so you also mentioned that in this conversation that you, you came across the idea that what was happening in Ferguson was certainly brewing around the country. It was going to erupt, whether it was Ferguson, where, wherever it might be. And a young protester said something to you in the wake of the Michael Brown incident that sort of caught you off guard. Would you tell them about that? Yes. We're along West Forreston and uh, this young lady walked up. And she says, Captain Ron, they call me Captain Ron. She said, Captain Ron, this isn't really about Mike Brown anymore. She says, there are a lot of things that are going on in our community and around this country that are unfair to people of different races, different genders, different sexual orientation, or people that are just different. And I thought about that for a moment, but then the next day when I was out on West Forest, a family from India came. It was a grandfather, grandmother, mom and dad and kids. And they walked over and said, are you Captain Johnson? And I said, yes. And they said, we want to tell you that what you're doing here is not about black and white. It's about humanity. And when I put those two things together, it actually made a change in me on my total approach. I think it made me a better man. So this is a big deal. It's a big, long journey that we're on. Um, I'd love for them to hear a little bit of just kind of your personal faith on this. Uh, last fall, in the heat of this, you came home one night and your daughter called you. Mm -hmm. Would you be comfortable in just kind of sharing with them a little bit of that? Sure. You know, my daughter, her name is Amanda. She's 24 years old. and So she called me on the phone and she said, uh, Daddy, are you scared? And, and I nicknamed her, I called her Willie. And I said, Willie, yes, Daddy's scared. I said, but it's going to be okay. And so the next day, my phone, I get a text. She sends me the passage in Matthew about Peter walking on the water. And I read it, um, very touching, very moving. And then she calls me because I guess she thought I didn't understand it. <laughs> 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 and she says, Daddy, when you feel like giving up, you think you're ready to fall. She says, remember, Jesus is going to pick you up just like he did Peter. And I began to, to take heed to that. I began to talk about that. And there were, there was a, we had a command post, and, and in that command post, there was a bathroom in the back. And at times when it would get hard and I think it was time for me to fall, I'd go in that bathroom. You know, when I pray and I cry and I would, would, would look at that on my phone. And so uh, faith really just uh, took, took a hold of me. And when I talk about shedding who I am before I was a policeman, I don't think I was ready to shed my faith. But as I walked down with Florissant, I, you know, I was so people, God made me shed it because people came up and started praying and touching. And then my daughter said that. So I knew that I had to be driven by that. What can we do? Uh, just in closing, uh, I know what you're facing. I know, I, I know a little bit we've talked, and I know what law enforcement, uh, the, their perspective. But for the rest of us who are a part of this conversation, any, any closing words, what would you say to us to encourage us to be a part of the solution as we move forward? Well, I tell you, the early days of Ferguson, a lot of the clergy came out. A lot of people of faith came out and tried to talk to the protesters. The protesters were not here. And in some cases, uh, they would say names to uh, call the ministers' names and say some really negative stuff, get out of here, where have you been? Um, but the ministers and those of faith uh, kept coming out. They kept coming out. And, and even one church brought a, uh, some tents out, kind of a revival setting. And I can tell you by the end, the strongest voice that I say that brought calm to Ferguson 
was the clergy and, and, and those of faith that came out and ministered to the citizens of, of St. Louis. And then they would listen. When the law enforcement voice or the superintendent voice of the school could not calm the crowd, the faith of God did. And so continue to do that. And I think that is what is going to continue to drive us to be better. I think we've gotten to this point in some cases because we've stepped away from our faith. And you heard me talk about a minute ago that I was re ready to reveal a lot of things about myself, but not that. But when I revealed that, people started to listen. And I didn't have to worry about not having a plan. I just had to just continue to walk and know that he'd give me that plan and give me those words. Captain Johnson, thank you for doing this. I know you all want to thank him as well. to live and lead by example in the areas of diversity and reconciliation. Now, God has made the church a reconciling community. That's what he created the church to be. But why is it that the church is better known as a segregated community than a reconciling community? It is our reconciliation for one another that gives credibility to the reconciliation between God and humanity through Jesus Christ. And there aren't a lot of people in this room that would disagree with that statement. But again, we're no more as a segregated community than a reconciling community. So I was kind of given the task or the question to answer the question, are we or do we have a problem with racism in America? So I thought I'd just pray about it, ask God, Yes, okay. <laughs> the problem isn't the civil rights understanding of racism, but the post-civil rights methodology of colorblindness. So this idea of colorblindness is that, you know, I don't see color, I just see grayish humanoids. <laughs> it's one of those things that has good intentions, but it's very misguided. It comes from Dr. King's idea that one day that his children, he had a dream that children not be judged by the color of their skin, but the content of their character. But considering the fact that we've had over 400 years of, of, of racism and, 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 and systemic injustice, we gotta realize that colorblindness is not the way to handle our history. Colorblindness is a problem for two main reasons. One reason is the fact that colorblindness does not acknowledge the image of God in diverse people groups. The second thing is that colorblindness actually encourages us to do surface level diversity and be passive in reconciliation. But again, God's called the church to be a what? Now, I learned how to preach in a black church, and so you know you gotta talk back, right? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, brother. Got one. All right, so, so what do we do? How do we become a reconciled community? It takes intentionality, vulnerability, and confession. So here is my community in Richmond, Virginia. You'll have all kinds of people. You have uh, people of different races, ethnicities. You have people who are millionaires in this picture, and you have people who are homeless people in this picture. You have some um, reformed people, some Baptists, some Lutheran, some charismatics, and people who are suspicious of charismatics. <laughs> and I'm gonna tell you something. It takes intentionality to get this kind of diversity. This type of thing just doesn't happen on its own because we're all in our world doing what we do and it makes sense to us. Now here's one of the things that we thought. About seven years ago, when we started this, this community, we thought that if we just got a diverse group of people together and just hope for the best, that we could be a truly multicultural community. But even with our good intentions, our good intentions aren't good enough. 
the thing that is challenging that we met was that we all have some level of implicit racial bias. Very few of us are Jim Crow racists, but we all have this idea that in our cultural understanding, there are some things that we think are just normal. But then you add the fact that we've had over 400 years of uh, systemic racism, and then for 30 years, we practiced this like colorblindness and thought that it would just be okay, so then all racial biases would be gone. But racial biases are the type of things that when you have an association with something that might be associated with a person, a, a place, a thing, or an idea that might be associated with something racial, they, there are these just automatic, unconscious things that come up that make you react a certain kind of way. So let me give you an example. Gabe Lyons is over six foot tall. I'm pretty sure that Gabe Lyons has never been referred to as a scary white man, a big scary white man. But the term big scary black man is something that sounds normal to our ears. So then, both Gabe and I are two mild-mannered type of guys. But if we were supposed to supposedly um, express some type of anger, then the perception of an angry black man is different than the perception of an angry white man. So implicit racial biases, they influence our friendships, our networks, how do we fund things, who do we think is qualified for leaders, leadership, and also it affects all types of important decision-making processes. So how do we overcome implicit racial bias? We have to have safe spaces to be vulnerable and discern our implicit racial biases. About three to four years into the birth of our community, we were on a staff retreat, and one of the African-American women that was on the staff, she said, hey, I am hungry for somebody to know me as a woman of color. I'm angry that we talk about racial reconciliation, yet we're not doing anything about it. And I'm just tired of having a code switch for just to make white people feel comfortable. So her vulnerability actually encouraged me to say, you know what, I'm a little hurt too by the cultural insensitivities from our community. And the, the co-pastor, another African-American man, he, he said, you know, I'm really tired that I have to assimilate it to white cultural norms and I just can't be respected as a pastor. So here we were at a crossroads. We had to make a decision. Were we going to create a safe space of belonging for people to bear one another's burdens across racial and ethnic identity? Or were we going to make the dominant culture feel comfortable? And so we grew a lot as a community. And we, yes, did some education about the issues of race, but we really learned how to be a vulnerable community and a confessing community. So I'm just gonna tell you a little bit of how things happened when Ferguson and Eric Garner choking incident came up. That was a very hard time for our community. It was a hard time for me personally, it was a hard time for those who were uh, in this particular space really caring and living and working out uh, reconciliation. We decided to have a prayer service. And in our prayer service, we had a time of open prayer and lamenting about what was going on. And something that we learned as a community is that a Christian community cannot be a reconciling community if it's not a confessing community. And so in this prayer, there was a 70-year-old white man, a retired engineer. He got up and he said, God, before I came to be a part of this community, I didn't know anything about race relations and white privilege. I was ignorant. God, please forgive my ignorance and please forgive the ignorance of my white brothers and sisters because we just don't know. Then there was a white seminarian woman who was married to a Mexican man and she said, you know what, as a white woman, I would never know what it's like to be a African-American or a person of color here in America, but what I can say is that I know what it's like to be married to an undocumented Mexican man. 
And every single time I hear somebody that says, I wish those dirty Mexicans would go back home, it's like a knife being thrusted in my stomach and twisted. And she's praying this and crying and wailing. And then there was this youth pastor's wife, an African-American woman that said, you know, I'm a new mother to a beautiful baby boy, African-American baby boy, and my greatest fear is that I would lose my son to implicit racial bias. That day, we did not solve the problem of race, but we learned what it meant to be a reconciling community. We got a chance to practice what it meant to be a reconciling community. So, Q, I just want to leave you one question. When you go back home, will you lead your community to be a reconciling community or a passive community? Because a reconciling community is what the hope of the world is today. Thank you very much. So I think you could see why we wanted to go ahead and show both of those today. There was a lot of overlap between uh, uh, both Johnson and Bailey and what they had to, to say to us. Uh, in particular, they one thing they brought up was this whole idea of colorblindness. Uh, what was your reaction to uh, what they had to say about that? I think, I think the... Uh, I think the easiest thing to do with the colorblindness is it just encourages us to be lazy because if, if we're all the same then we all have the same advantages and we all have the same problems whereas people who are different than us and come from different backgrounds and have a different set of history have different problems and to ignore that just is kind of unfeeling. That's kind of how I felt about it. Okay, excellent. Other thoughts on that? I am, I'm just <clears throat> simply amazed that I'm in a predominantly Caucasian church that's discussing Ferguson and racial reconciliation. It's, it's amazing. My wife and I came from a predominantly African-American church that was somewhat upper middle class, medium middle class, and very rarely did we discuss the issues of Ferguson or Michael Brown's situation and Eric Gardner's. They didn't discuss it much. It was just like, it was the norm. So I'm amazed at that we, firstly, that we're having this conversation. And the second thing is, there's a lot to digest of what we just seen. I mean, it, there were so many issues to digest and, and it's hard to articulate just one issue that was presented. There's so many issues. Uh, but it takes boldness uh, to, to present something like because you know the color line uh, is still present in our community. Racism is still present. Uh, I work in risk management at a major corporation here in Nashville, and Dollar General in, in uh, Billisville. We have over about fourteen thousand stores. And one of the greatest issues that we are confronted with is lawsuits from African Americans filed against white employees that profile them when they come into the store and they have followed and then police have called, called them African Americans, they're handcuffed, taken away. A lot of these cases we had to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars because they, they get smart attorneys, they request the films and it shows they never sold any of them. Yet they are profiled and, and be honest with you, I find more Caucasian still stuff in the stores than the black people. But they don't get followed around the store. And they don't get called police on. Sometimes they get let go. So it's, this is a very, very deep issue that I'm, I'm thankful that this church is addressing it. But the body of Christ is bigger than our creed. And so, but we seem to be, like your God said this morning, we have achieved some greatness. But I believe there's more in store for us and work to do. Thank you, Richard. Um, yeah, I, I just say <coughs> for us being an upper middle class uh, white congregation, it's just a baby step. It, it, but at least it's it's a step. It's a first steps toward awareness. 
it so easy for us to be, um, what do you say, distance demonizers. You know, uh, people from Vietnam and other uh, nations, countries, uh, come to this country, and within a year or two, they've assimilated, uh, they start their own businesses, and so forth. Uh, the blacks have been here for 400 years, and yet they can't quite assimilate. I wonder why. Trajectory. And, and that's, that's... If you look at some of the laws that, uh, I mean, I mean, even in insurance, in, 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 I mean, we, the last class that uh, Lee Camp taught, and we had a, a gentleman that spoke about black folks are not able to get loans, uh, insurance companies redlining, redlining black communities. So there's been a constant suppression of, of African Americans legally and financially. And so it's, when I grew up, I grew up right in the heart of North Nashville. Right there on Jefferson Street, there was a five-and-ten-cent store that was owned by the Atkins, Jane Atkins, their, their family. So what we witness as African-Americans is, first, Jews own a lot of the stores and communities in our neighborhoods. Siphoned money off, and they lived in Bentley. Black folks were not able to. We were prohibited from economically, suppressed economically, suppress uh, financially. So we didn't, I mean, that's an easy statement to make, you know, minus some people, because, and, and now you see in black communities, like in New York, Koreans uh, take have owned the businesses. It's, it was even harder for black folks to get loans with the same equity as a white person to start businesses, even to this day. That's, I mean, certain, several studies have shown that black businesses do not get the same access to capital that Caucasians and other ethnic groups have. So that's an easy question to ask, but you have to delve into the why of that question. And, and the why is, is trajectory. Our, our trajectory has not been the same. Our treatment has not been the same. Uh, so, uh, and there's been several studies on that. And it's, it's obvious why we are where we are. We started as slaves. And my four parents were slaves in this country. And if you start as slaves and compare a person that starts with that hadn't been had got homestead, I was riding, I was on a plane with a guy going to Texas. He was headed to Oklahoma. He said that his family got hundreds of acres from homestead. Well, we were, we were farmers, 40 acres and a meter. We never got that. So if your ancestors started with hundreds of acres that were given to you free by the government, and we started as slaves, there's no, you can't ask the question why we don't have nothing, because we started with nothing. There's no comparison. That's, that's, that's a bad question. Hey, Richard, talk about the road planning. I think that's illustrative illustrative of what you're talking about. The I-40 planning. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Talk about that. Yeah, yeah. yeah and, I, and I posted this on my Facebook page. Thank you for the question. If you look at the path of the interstate system all over this country, it took the path like a river, the path of least resistance. Jefferson Street, if you look at, I mean, the interstate system is like a bloodline that flows through your body. If your body is cut off, certain parts of your body is cut off with blood, doesn't get you don't get oxygen, so that part of your body dies. You look at Jefferson Street, which was the heart of the African American community, the way the interstate cut through Jefferson Street without any access and egress, ramps leading to and from Jefferson Street, the community died. Same thing happened in every major black community in the state in the country besides Memphis. Memphis has more entrepreneurs, black entrepreneurs in Nashville. And that's because they have more resilience than the blacks here. So, I mean, you got you gotta, I mean, if you ask the question, you gotta ask the motive of the question, you gotta see the motive behind the question. And so, the reason why we don't have what we have is because we started with nothing. And then we were suppressed 
still are being suppressed. Uh, one of my best friends is uh, Donna Ford on Facebook. She she writes a lot about how black kids uh, are treated unfairly in education. And so if you start with nothing, you're going to end you got to see where we started from, where we came from.
better person than I was. <laughs> but uh, I, I think we have to examine ourselves. It's so easy to say, I'm not racist. Well, I'm not racist. I like Richard Hunter. Who wouldn't like Richard Hunter? You know, that's not the point. <laughs> uh, there's, there are things in us that have been carefully taught. Not, by, not necessarily by my parents. Uh, I didn't feel that way around them, but somehow insidiously it came in. In old movies from the 30s and the 40s that I saw where the black person was personified in a certain way, uh, or depicted in a certain way, a stereotypical picture. Uh, I want to get rid of it all. I want to be out of that. I don't want any of it in me. It's an ugly feeling to have. I don't want it. Um, and I'm confessing to you that I did have that uh, Richard, I, I, I don't know you, uh, but uh, my, my question is this, and I, and I think maybe your life is, is part of the answer. If, if, if we could get to what it was, obviously you said you grew up off Jefferson Street, probably somewhat economically disadvantaged at that time, and you have... Well, have I wasn't. <laughs> okay, okay, so like I say, I don't know you, the Jefferson Street area when I grew up was the black back. Okay. I mean, you have me this, my Harry Hudson College, Tennessee State, three major universities, and, and black folks own businesses, several businesses on Jefferson Street, and both of my parents were. I don't ever remember being <coughs> hungry. I don't ever, been, ever remember being with him. Uh, so, and so, So, so I never grew up economically disadvantaged. So I, I want to clarify that. Well, and, and, and that's it. But there so are lots of I'm just, saying, I'm just saying perception. Right. Right. And, and, right. And what you're speaking to is the same thing that Sister Collins just spoke mm -hmm. You might have a perception of me just because I'm black that I grew up economically. Well, and, and so and, much and, from, and from what you said earlier about the... Read my book of yeah. on, my, on my wife's family. You won't believe the way black folks we still own 500 acres of land in Missouri because of her dad. Uh, and it's been in the family for over 150 years. So there are several black folks that have done exceptional work. And that's why I point out in my book, uh, no, I didn't grow up in my house. The question is, and, and uh, but, but still, how do we change and give give inner city African Americans other other the tools to change their trajectory. Maybe not their parents, but but today's kids. How do we give them the tools to escape that if that's what their their desire is to uh, whether it's economically, socially, all of those things. And and it's like he said. We don't want to assimilate to all be the same color. We want to have our uh, individual characteristics, but we do have to all live within the same framework ultimately. How do you improve? You improve the status of people one step at a time. Uh, right, right now, I mean, there's economic downspiral of, of poor whites and Some of the poorest white folks I've dealt with are in West Virginia. Um, and I've, we've had attorneys to come and speak to us at the corporate office to talk about how depressed it is. And if you look at the new healthcare proposal, most of the folks that voted for a certain, you know, for the current president are going to be devastated. 
Good afternoon. Go in peace. 